Jesus himself made this clear. He said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John in 1 John 5 says this, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. Today we begin a new study in Colossians. Uh, we are going to take a look at this book with the focus, with the idea, with the, the lens of this phrase, the supremacy of Jesus in all things. The supremacy of Jesus in all things. And here is the prayer, here is the thought that I'd love for all of us to connect with during the series. And the prayer is this, I want everything in my life to be about Jesus. I want everything in my life to be about Jesus. Let that sink in. Think about it. That in some way, Jesus is our picture, our motivation, the person that receives our best in all situations, in all relationships. I want everything, God, in my life to be about your son, Jesus. Colossians is a book consisting of four chapters, 95 verses, and I want to throw this challenge out to you. I want to challenge you to memorize it. Who wants to memorize it? Raise your hand if you want to memorize it. Same response in first service. It was uh, nobody raised their hand. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Okay. Most scholars think Colossians is one of Paul's most profound letters that he wrote. As I began studying this book, there are some uh, truths there, nuggets of, uh, of godly wisdom there, but also concrete applications in how to apply those truths. Somehow, the Colossian church believers began to drift in their understanding of who Jesus was. Uh, what his purpose was, the, the work of redemption, uh, the understanding of forgiveness. And they started drifting away from that. Uh, apparently, there were some false teachers, there was some uh, heresy that was floating around and, and, and subtly creeping into the church. And so Paul writes to clear up some confusion about who Jesus is and his purpose. It's important to understand this, I like how one author put it, a proper view of Jesus includes two essential parts. The person of Jesus Christ, which includes his character and nature, who he is, and the work of Jesus Christ, which is all about the redemption plan. Warren Wiersbe, a Bible scholar and commentator, said this, any compromise on either of these two parts will result in an impotent or powerless faith. The supremacy of Jesus. And the big idea behind Paul's letter to the church at Colossae is this, is that it's only through the person and work of Jesus Christ that salvation is made possible. It's only the person of Jesus Christ. And so with this, this motive and this idea in Paul's mind as he writes this letter, he wants the people of Colossae the church of Colossae to understand this, what he writes in Colossians 2.10, is that you are made complete in Christ. 
meaning that as believers, we need nothing else but Jesus. Nothing more to add to it. There's no uh, idea that, as our culture tries to tell us, that we need something new and exciting, some new relationship, some new insight. There's nothing we need to add to our Christian experience except Jesus. Jesus is supreme, and Jesus is sufficient. That's Paul's, uh, God's message through Paul to the church. Two words that characterize Jesus, supreme and sufficient. Supreme and sufficient. Now, I want this video to help me explain and illustrate supreme and sufficient. as this video shows, that he is bigger than all we can imagine. Supreme. And at the same time, 
acquainted with every single detail of our lives, making him sufficient. Jesus is supreme and sufficient today as well. Now, what do I mean by supreme? Where do we hear the word supreme? Some of you like like a cheese pizza, and then some of you like a supreme pizza, or a regular taco, regular nachos, and then supreme. Where else do we hear supreme? Supreme court. What does supreme mean to us? How do we think about it? Listen to these definitions and think about it in relationship to Jesus. Supreme means the highest rank or authority. A position of unquestioned authority, dominance, influence. Supreme also means crucial. The supremacy, the ultimate highest authority, crucial dominance of our lives is to be Jesus. Paul gives us an answer to Jesus being supreme in Colossians 1, 15, 16, and 17, that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, invisible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things, all things, hold together. Paul doesn't say some things. He didn't say part of things. He says all things. All things are held together in Jesus. From the biggest things to the smallest things, all things. And Jesus is the supreme ruler over everything that he created, Paul says in Colossians, and we need to treat him that way. That in our lives, Jesus is the supreme of all situations, all circumstances, all relationships. That's why I said at the beginning, God, I want everything in my life to be about Jesus. All things. Who else could be described as supreme? And what do we mean by sufficient? Paul continues in Colossians 1. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. And through him to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace with the, through the blood of the cross, through him I say whether things on heaven or things in the earth. Christ's work is sufficient. If you're going to hear anything today, you're going to hear this over and over. Christ is supreme and he is sufficient. The title of the message this morning is The Supremacy of Christ. I know it was a long introduction, so let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer and we'll continue. God, thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you for this book. I thank you for the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to Paul to give it to the church at Colossae and ultimately give it to us. And God, I pray this morning as we open your word that we invite in our own hearts and minds your Holy Spirit to teach us in all wisdom and all truth, to give us a, a clarity and understanding that's beyond our own understanding but it's supernatural understanding because of your Holy Spirit. And God, I pray as your Holy Spirit teaches us in all wisdom and all truth that you would find us ready to respond in obedience to that truth. Give us clarity in our minds and empower us, we pray, to live it out. 
Would you take a minute and pray for the person in front of you or behind you that they would hear, receive, and respond to the Lord this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning in the first message, as we open up Colossians, we're going to talk about a foundational context and the culture that this letter was written to. It's like building a house. We need to build the foundation first, and then our study will be built on top of that. Uh, We'll look at influences that were kind of invading the church in Colossae, uh, that was detracting them from the completeness of Christ, and we'll use some parallels for today. And let me just say this. uh, A weekly email went out. Uh, last week that had a, 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 a kind of an overview from the Bible Project. It was a video uh, on the overview of Colossians. If you get a chance to read through that or watch that video, I think it'll be really helpful as we prepare and go through our study. Uh, what we do, uh, like we did in Mark, uh, we go through this verse by verse. It's called expository preaching. We're asking that the God, uh, Jesus, would uh, expose truth for us and that we would uh, be enlightened by that exposed truth. Uh, we'll do that verse by verse, just like we did in Mark. And then some people call it exegete the word. And so that means just pulling out principles um, that God's going to give us. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, I'm going to read the first eight verses. Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world, also is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. The first word of Colossians is what? Paul. It gives us who the author is of the book. Paul writes to the Colossians uh, from prison. Uh, According to Acts, Paul is arrested by the Judaizers. Uh, outside kind of the western Turkey area. He was uh, arrested there for inciting a riot or uh, inciting a crowd. And he was arrested, and he was at home, uh, kind of a house arrest for two years. And during that two years, he writes this letter. And the reason he writes this letter is because uh, a fellow servant, he calls Epaphras, comes and visits Paul while he's in prison. And Epaphras tells Paul of what's happening at the church at Colossae. And he tells him about what these uh, false teachers and these heretics and all these different things are happening in the church. And Paul writes a letter to refute what has been happening because of Epaphras' message. Now, Paul rarely says this, but in this particular book, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul uh, sometimes doesn't uh, introduce himself as apostle, but this time he does. And part of the reason is because Paul had never been to Colossae. And so he's given them credentials in some way to say, hey, I am an apostle of Jesus. I have credentials. But then he follows it up by saying, but it's not me. It's through the will of God. It's not me writing it because I'm an apostle. It's because I am writing what God told me to write to you. And then he also mentions Timothy. Now, most of us understand the Paul-Timothy relationship. We understand that Paul was Timothy's mentor and that Timothy looked up to Paul and he was discipled by Paul. And Timothy was with Paul at the time of the writing 
of this letter and when he was in Rome. Been a, a companion of Paul in his missionary journeys uh, and through this territory. And what's interesting is that Paul nor Timothy had never been there, never been to Colossae. But maybe because of what verse 2 says, that the saints and fellow brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, they had heard about the people at Colossae through their missionary journeys. Paul, even though he hasn't been there, feels a pastoral responsibility to care for this church and to write to this church. And so we're going to look at four different aspects of Paul's uh, intention about the book, kind of a build a foundation. And the first one is Colossae's location is significant. Now, <clears throat> this is a map of Colossae. Colossae is right here. It's about 100 miles east of, a, of Ephesus. Uh, Colossae is uh, close to two other cities, Herapolis and Laodicea. Uh, this is, there's also a river that runs right through, right through here, right through that area. You can probably see it. Um, it became a very popular trade route. Lots of trade came through there, a port-type area. Um, Herapolis and Laodicea, they continue to expand, but for some reason, Colossae doesn't keep up, and they become more of a, uh, a second-class town among the three. Uh, we would call it maybe a small town, not much going on. They didn't have a lot of attractions there, but nevertheless, they were still there. What's interesting is that even though they started to decline in popularity and influence, it was the church that made it significant. The religious characters and the philosophers that were coming through this uh, port-type area were staying there, and they were infiltrating their teachings and their, their thoughts into the church at Colossae. One author said this, Colossae was a fertile ground for religious speculations and religious heresies. Now, here's what's interesting, just as a side note. History tells us that there was a, an earthquake in around 60 A.D. in this area right at Colossae. And when they excavated after the, after the earthquake, they found uh, places of worship, they found uh, coins, they found different um, uh, memorabilia and like little uh, uh, statues of worship, and it just kind of uh, exemplified the type of area this, this place had become and the type of influences that had infiltrated the church. Now let me just stop and ask for a second. As far as religion and philosophies about God and life and other doctrines, how would you describe our culture? If you were to think about our culture, what philosophies and doctrines would you describe that are in our culture today? The same thing Paul's dealing with with the church there is the same thing we are dealing with today. And we'll unpack that in just a little bit. Not only was there heretics, not only was there philosophers, not only was there a, a poor teaching and pulling people away from the true doctrine of Jesus, there was also a strong Jewish influence in Colossae. Historian Josephus gives us this insight with these uh, uh, encouraging literary references about the, the, the strong emphasis of the Jewish people there. And they brought with them their own ideas about religion. Verse 2 says this, Paul writes this letter to the saints and to the fellow brethren in Colossae. The saints and fellow brethren. And the message he gives them is this. Saints and fellow brethren, stay connected to the truth of Jesus, the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus in the midst of varying views about God and life. 
Now, I think it's interesting he uses these two words, saints, to show their position in Christ and fellow brethren to hold them accountable to each other in their faith in Christ. Saint and fellow brethren. And let me just tell you, that's what you are this morning. The saints and fellow brethren. To be reminded of your position in Christ and to be reminded of our accountability to each other as our faith in Christ. Now, even this opening this letter, Paul is reminding the church of who they are and how they become more of who they are. And then there's some more about the church that I want to tell you. The truth is that the city of Colossae would probably not even be recognized. It's not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. It's only recognized because of the church there. Paul had heard of their faith, verse 1, chapter 4, and then again in verse 9. So it begs the question... How did the church begin? Well, I'm really glad you asked. Because I'm going to answer it. The church at Colossae began out of an outgrowth of Paul's missionary journey when he was in Ephesus. Acts 19.10 says that this took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. The word that Paul was doing and the work that he was doing in Ephesus spread 100 miles east to the church at Colossae. Now, during Paul's missionary journeys, Ephesus, two men came to Christ from Colossae, Epaphras and Philemon. Epaphras apparently was one of the key founders of the church in Colossae, and he shared the gospel with his friends there, Colossians 1.7 says. Colossians 4 shows he also had ministry in the cities of Herapolis and Laodicea. And just as a side note, when we go to Greece and Turkey, we will visit this area because that's exactly where we're going. Now stay with me just for a second. Philemon chapter 2 says this, Philemon to our dear beloved brother and fellow worker, to Epiphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church of your house. Now, I want to unpack this. Philemon's wife, Epiphia, had a son named Archippus. Archippus, we'll later see in Colossians chapter 4, is probably the pastor of the church at Colossae. Colossians 4.17, say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received from the Lord that you may fulfill it. Now, why am I telling you about Archippus? Why am I telling you about Epaphras? And why am I telling you about Philemon? It's because none of these guys had a seminary degree. None of them had been to Bible college. None of them had planted a church. All of them were lay people responding to what God had put on their heart to do. And we're reading about it today. And so my encouragement here is there's, here's two lay people used of God to minister to the church at Colossae, but also minister to three other cities. Because they responded to who Jesus was. Now the church was about five years old whenever Paul writes this letter. And there's a crisis that he writes to. So what's the crisis that required the response? That's what we're going to look at next. Crisis in the church. Let me just say this, that there is no church that is perfect. Well, maybe except one church that I took this picture out of my window (laughs) in Atlanta. I think it was Atlanta. I tried to get this guy's name and number to see if we could have coffee and figure out how we could have the perfect church. (laughs) Maybe other than this church, there's no perfect church. 
No perfect church. Every church has issues. Why? Because every church has people that have issues. Colossae was no different. Colossae had people that had issues with the supremacy of Jesus. And so Paul writes a letter to them. And because people had issues with Jesus being the supremacy, Paul knew that that was a crisis that could destroy the ministry of the church. And so he writes this letter in order to refute what the church was listening to and what they were doing. So what was the heresy that was threatening the purity of the church? The peace, the influence of just Jesus and his supremacy alone. As we mentioned earlier, for Colossians, it was a combination of Eastern philosophy, it was mysticism, uh, it was all kinds of her heresy. Uh, there was also this other group of people that were called Gnostics, uh, that they just were in the know. They, they knew things. And, and it would play out like this, that uh, I know this deep spiritual thing of God. I know it. And if you just do what I do, say what I say, you can know it too. You can have this thing that I know. You just add this and that to your life and God experiences. And if you do these things, you'll be in the know with me. The Gnostics. Knowledge. And as you know in your own life, when someone is in the know, what do they become? The authority of what they know. And they become the supremacy rather than Jesus. And that's what was happening at the church at Colossae as well. The Gnostics were in the know. And they were replacing Jesus with themselves. And I need to tell us that all of our knowing must be bolted to the knowledge and supremacy of Jesus. Must be. And so this is what's happening at the first church of Colossae. Now sadly, these heretics and Gnostics were becoming the spiritual authority. They were invading subtly but very pervasively into the church. And Paul writes to this crisis. All the teachings were centered on all of them rather than Jesus. Whatever ritual and thinking they could do to remove evil, purify themselves, get rid of most of the things, they could have a spiritual life. But it was all about them. Not Christ. Paul encourages in Colossians 2.8 that all of those things are simply man-made philosophies based on traditions, not on divine truth. One of the philosophical questions facing Colossians was this. Why is there evil in the world if creation was made by a holy God? They concluded after thinking through this and after they speculated and contemplated and thought and pondered that it must be that all matter is evil. That's what they believed. And that if they could just get rid of matter, then their spiritual lives would be elevated. John dealt with this when he wrote 1 John. Paul's dealing with it now when he's writing to the church at Colossians. These philosophers and teachers were encouraging people in Colossae uh, to just transcend and rid themselves of earthly matter. They would have this divine experience that the spiritual is found in meditation, achieving spiritual perfection, thinking that all matter led to evil. It was just a blatant yet subtle at the same time, thing to pull them away from the supremacy of Jesus. That led to their understanding that a holy God could not come in contact with evil matter. 
they had thoughts about astrology and angels and all these different, di different ideas. And, and you may ask, why are you telling me all this? Because we have the same exact thing happening in our culture today. Eastern religions uh, were there thinking that they were celebrating that, but that wasn't it. There was a Jewish form as well. Paul says in the second, cha second chapter, he talks about uh, the, the Jewish people having these diets and regulations. So it's not only this idea of matter being rid of, it's also this idea of performing, that diets and disciplines can be good for one's health. But Paul says they have no power to develop true, true spirituality. The people in the church at Colossae had to be kind of going, wait, wait what, am I, what am I listening? Where am I going? Who do I listen to? And Paul's writing saying, it, it, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. And the reason I bring this up is that it, there was almost a smorgasbord of spirituality. You, you just pick whatever you want. We, we have this phrase, you do you. And we have this phrase today. You just pick what you want. That feels good for you, do it. That, that works for you, great. And what happens? The supremacy of Christ is diluted. Paul says throughout the book, Jesus Christ alone is the supreme and sufficient one. Colossians 1.18, he himself will come to have first place in everything. Colossians 3.11, Christ is all and in all. All the believer needs is Jesus. When we make, or our culture makes, Jesus Christ and the Christian faith only a part of a religious system, we stop making him supreme. When we just have this mentality, I'm going to try all this stuff and I'm just going to tack Jesus onto it. Or we even have the boldness that I'm going to try all this stuff and I'm going to ask Jesus to even bless it. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is sufficient. One author said this, When we strive for spiritual perfection or spiritual fullness by means of formulas, disciplines, or rituals, we go backwards instead of forwards. Think about our culture today. Think about what's going on around us today and what people believe and how they're seeking fulfillment Paul addresses the issue. It's interesting how Paul does this. Paul uh, uses the vocabulary of the heretics or the philosophers. He uses their words to give it divine truth. Throughout the letter, you'll read words like complete and whole and perfect and full. In, in this book alone, over 30 times, the word all is mentioned. Jesus is all. The supremacy is in all of Jesus. All of God's fullness dwells in Christ, and we share in that fullness. In Colossians 3 and 4, Paul, after unpacking the supremacy of Christ, talks about living in the supremacy of Christ. And what Paul teaches is this. The greatest antidote for false teaching is godly living. Because what we believe determines how we will live and how we will behave. What we believe determines how we will behave. An example is this. 
If I think all matter is, is evil, we will use our bodies one way. But if I believe my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, I'll treat my body a different way. One author put it this way, wrong doctrine always leads to wrong living. And right doctrine leads to right living. I want to summarize by saying this. In your life and my life, if Christ is truly supreme and sufficient in our lives, then we will glorify him by seeking to remain pure, by enjoying fellowship with other saints, by loving each other at home and being faithful at work, and by seeking to witness Christ and serve him effectively. That's the result of Jesus being supreme and Jesus being sufficient in our lives. The culture has a lot of, of offers for us to pull us away from our belief as a believer that Jesus is supreme and sufficient. And we also live in a time where the church, particularly the American church, has become soft, has become soft in its desire and its dedication to know the word of God. If there's not an understanding of a desire for the word of God, you and I will fall prey to the teachings that are out there. Over and over, Paul tells the churches, be diligent, be diligent, be devoted, be devoted. So the false teachings that come to the church are not able to be defended in a robust way because there's not a biblical understanding of why that would be. One author gave this caution. Our evangelical churches and followers of Jesus are in danger of diluting the faith in their loving attempt, in their loving attempt to understand the belief of others. Man-made and self-made philosophies can subtly creep into our lives and into the churches. And that's what the evil one loves to do. Sometimes he's blatant. Sometimes he looks like he's got horns and a pitchfork and you can label him. But most times, most times he's way more subtle. Most times, most times, he creeps in these thoughts and he lures us away in ways that we don't maybe realize. And that's why Paul says this warning in Colossians chapter 2, let no one delude you with persuasive argument. Let no one take you captive through philosophy and empty deception. Let no one act as your judge. Jesus alone. That's the thrust and the theme of our study. Christ is supreme and Christ is sufficient. This morning we're going to partake of communion, celebrating the supremacy and particularly the sufficiency of Jesus that's made possible at the cross. Seth and the team are going to come. There's stations at the front. There's a station in the back. The team's going to play. You're going to come. You're going to get your elements and take it back to your seat. And here's what I want us to do. Paul, when talking about 
communion says to eat and drink in a worthy manner. The worthy manner is this. Consider my own life before God. Where are thoughts, philosophies, or people, uh, relationships, others that have crept slowly into my life that has shared in some sort of way the place that only belongs to Jesus? Jesus alone is supreme and sufficient. And my question to us this morning is, is that how you're viewing him? Is that how your life reflects him? That he's supreme and sufficient in your life? Is he supreme in your thoughts, your goals, your relationships, your marriage, your family, your work, your situations? Is there anyone or anything else, including yourself, that is taking the rightful place of Jesus? That's what communion is all about. Coming to the table, confessing, receiving forgiveness, repenting, and living a life that reflects the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for this passage. I pray as we come forward to get communion, we remember the body and the blood of Jesus, broken, broken for me and for everyone here. God, I pray that we partake of this time in a worthy manner, that we lay our lives before you and we give you freedom to see and to speak into our lives, to show us areas that maybe we have subtly removed you as the supreme and sufficient one in our lives. Holy Spirit, only you can do that. So we pray you do that work in us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. After everyone